how quickly they choose to forget. We examine the normalization of Syria's Bashar al-Assad, Elon Musk's cutbacks at Twitter, and the glitches and crashes that keep making news. Plus, corruption in Quito, exposed by journalists and pursued in the Ecuadorian courts. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we don't cover the news, we cover the way the news is covered. Sometimes it's helpful to give a breaking news story, like the return of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad from the political wilderness, a little time to play out. Last week, 12 years after being shunned for his cold-blooded crackdown on protests that pushed his country towards civil war, Assad returned to the Arab League's annual summit and a series of photo ops that looked like a victory lap. Assad has Saudi Arabia's ambitious Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, among others, to thank for his rehabilitation. It suits the Saudis, their strategic interests. For many Syrian citizens, though, more than half of whom have fled their homes, this neither sits well nor bodes well. Refugees outside the country are now under more pressure to return to Syria, large parts of which are still unsafe. Seldom do photo ops, staged gatherings for the news cameras, send a message as clearly as these did. Capture such an important story and signal such a clear political shift. After more than a decade of being shunned by the Arab League, Bashar al-Assad is back in its good graces. It's almost as though the last 12 years, from the dawn of the Arab Spring in Tunisia through to the most brutal of war crimes in Assad, Syria, didn't happen. You see a man who knows that ultimately, I mean, he's won. He's on something of a victory lap right now. He knows that he ultimately succeeded. Well-documented crimes against humanity, abuses of power, brutality, bombing of one's own population. He forced millions into displacement, did not alter a single aspect of his behavior, and he got away with it. I think he looked far too relaxed for a war criminal. The optics were almost celebratory. I understand why there has been this decision to allow him back into the Arab League. He's been causing a lot of harm in the region, deliberately so, so that the, the region would have no choice but to let him, let him into the tent. The photo of the Arab League symbolizes the painful reality that the Arab Spring no longer exists on Arab land because these are the same people that we rose against. They are the people that not only killed us and displaced us, but they also got away with it. And it's evidence that the opposite of accountability is the reality. The process of normalizing Bashar al-Assad began in 2018. It's been a series of small steps. Over the last two years, audiences across the region have seen Assad meeting with various Arab officials as more and more governments began to re-engage. One significant holdout was Saudi Arabia, until a change took place in Riyadh. It's part of a larger Saudi strategy under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Long-time regional rivals Saudi Arabia and Iran have agreed to restore diplomatic missions. Riyadh is out to thaw relations with Tehran. 
A Saudi delegation has been to the Yemeni capital, Sana'a. And eight years into their war on Yemen, the Saudis have made overtures to their enemies there as well. Saudi Arabia is betting that dispensing with inter-Arab divisions will then limit the influence that outsiders like Russia and Iran have had in the Syrian war and the Americans have had in multiple conflicts. That would make bin Salman the regional kingpin he wants to be. It's important to place the normalization with Assad within the wider diplomatic outreach that's been happening. If you consider what's been happening with Mohammed bin Salman with Iran, if you look at what's been happening with Mohammed bin Salman in Yemen, I mean, they started talking to their Houthis. Again, was that even thinkable a few years ago? This is part of a larger diplomatic outreach. A leader who is trying to show his diplomacy credentials, his diplomacy abilities. And that's what I think really drove this Assad decision. The Saudis really think that a multipolar world that where they are not so reliant on the Americans is one where they will benefit, particularly because they feel very hard done by, by the Americans over the past a few years, in some cases with good reason. They said this is not the, the end of the process, this is just the beginning. So I think what you will see is an attempt to drag Assad away from the Russian Iranian orbit and to see if there is a possibility that he can ameliorate some of the behaviors that particularly the, uh, the Gulf states and some of his neighbors have found most egregious. There's also a refugee angle to this story, driven by political pragmatism, the consequences of which could prove tragic. More than six million refugees have spilled over Syria's borders, escaping through or settling in neighboring countries like Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey. This normalization of Assad allows politicians in those states to argue, using some ugly rhetoric at times, that those refugees should now go home. They're playing this concept of, you know, well, people can go back home now. You know, the Russian jets aren't flying overhead. The barrel bombs aren't pounding down on neighborhoods. Add to that this normalization with the Arab League, and all of a sudden you have the perfect carte blanche for any country to be able to begin shipping Syrian refugees back home because they can go, well, look, you know, Bashar, Syria, back in the Arab League, things are normal, it's stable, it's great, let's send them all back. It's cruel. Syrians are not surprised. Uh, we've seen it before. The UAE has been a champion of the Assad regime. Saudi Arabia has changed its narrative on, on dealing with the Assad regime. We live in a time where the war criminal is presented as the civilized actor in a conflict and his victims are presented as uncivilized. We need to change the narrative and we need to treat refugees as humans, not as numbers, because this narrative is not just words, it's people's lives. Inside Syria, government forces have recaptured much of the country. Assad has been making carefully choreographed visits to key cities, with his wife Asma at his side and cameras recording his every move. It's all designed to let Syrians know he's back in charge. 
the one area his regime has never lost control of, the domestic media landscape, news outlets that deliver his message to Syrians. The gist of which, these days, tells them that whatever discontent they have with Assad's record, the time has come to move on, to make the best of the new normal. The trip he took to Aleppo last year was a symbolically significant case in point. It was Assad's first foray into the one-time war zone since 2016, when his forces, supported by Russian bombers and Iranian-backed militias, took the city back. The photo opportunity you saw when they were wandering around Aleppo, was, it was designed to provoke an image of stability. You know, he has the open-necked shirt, he's going for a walk in the soups of Aleppo. It was meant to give the impression, I think domestically more than internationally, that the regime is stable. Because you have to remember, it is also a country where they have 18 million people still living, people wanting to go to work, send their kids to schools, their businesses to open, all that sort of stuff. And so for those people, when you have that kind of symbolism, that kind of photo op, it really makes them feel like maybe the war can draw to a close and maybe they can focus on something else, anything else, than this horrific war for 12 years. The Syrian government has a long, long history of just huge amounts of propaganda, even before Bashar al-Assad, his father, was the past master of this. Assad now continues in that tradition. You see this everywhere he goes. Anytime there was a major victory from the government, he would come after that a few weeks later, a few months later. He would be glad-handing people. He would perhaps talk to a widow, right? He would perhaps try to comfort someone. And of course, it would always have this moment when someone from state TV would put a microphone in front of him and he would give one of these long discursive speeches. And these are important moments for the Syrian state because it means that this area is no longer, you know, the word in Arabic, it's not just like out on its own. It is actually now again under the state. Which means under Bashar al-Assad's control. Because times have changed. Political calculations have been made. Previous positions have been disowned. Justice has been denied. And Bashar al-Assad has been accepted, if not exactly welcomed, back into the fold. There's a year and a half to go before the U.S. presidential elections, and there's a sideshow unfolding within the right-wing media there. It's all about who gets to tell the story first and how. Minakshi Ravi has been watching it all go down. Richard, this past Wednesday, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, announced he's running for the Republican nomination. There's a standard format for these events, a social media campaign, then a room full of supporters, followed by a primetime slot on the right-wing channel Fox News. DeSantis broke the mold with the help of Twitter owner Elon Musk. We want to welcome you to this historic Twitter Spaces event. The announcement took place on Twitter Spaces, Twitter's audio streaming facility. But the technical glitches kept coming, and it turned into a bit of a car crash. All right, sorry about that. We, we've got so many people here that I think we are, we are uh, kind of melting the servers. So they just keep crashing, huh? Servers are straining somewhat. Next came the mockery online. President Joe Biden tweeted a link for supporters to donate to his re-election campaign, a link which actually worked. Then Donald Trump posted this crazy video on his social media site, Truth Social. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome to our Ron DeSantis Twitter space. Hello. Uh, can you hear me now? Can I please make my big announcement now? Fox News eventually did have DeSantis on its air, and it had a little fun with it. Fox News will not crash during this interview. Fox was clearly enjoying itself. It's had a rough time recently. There's the big payout it made to keep a billion-dollar lawsuit from Dominion Voting Systems from going to court, and then the very public firing of star anchor Tucker Carlson, who now says he'll take his show to Twitter. Starting soon, we'll be bringing a new version of the show we've been doing for the last six and a half years to Twitter. As for Elon Musk, what goes around comes around. Tech analysts have concluded that all those layoffs Musk ordered after his Twitter takeover have come back to bite him, that the site just doesn't function as smoothly as it did under the previous ownership team. Thanks, Mina. To Ecuador now, whose president, Guillermo Lasso, recently faced an impeachment trial. He was accused of embezzlement. The case against Lasso started with some investigative journalism. Four months ago, an online outlet, La Posta, published an expose accusing the Ecuadorian government of drug trafficking and corruption at the highest level. La Posta's team, 10 investigative reporters, poured through thousands of public contracts, conducted hundreds of off-the-record interviews, and pieced together a puzzle that showed how taxpayers' money was ending up in criminal hands. La Posta's revelations also touched on gang violence and cartel control. In a country of 17 million, 17 people are killed every day. That's a murder rate that has nearly doubled over the past year. The Listening Post's Flo Phillips now on the evidence against Ecuador's president and the journalists behind the story. It was Valentine's Day. My wife and I were sitting down to our Valentine's Day dinner and we opened up my laptop. Ecuadorianos, estas últimas semanas, un medio digital ha insinuado que el presidente del gobierno del Ecuador, su presidente, está presuntamente envuelto en una supuesta red de corrupción. My daughters could hear the president of the republic, the most powerful man in the country, saying that their parents were news assassins, media terrorists. This address, live streamed on February 14th, didn't bring Ecuadorians any breaking news. Rather, Guillermo Lasso was using his presidential platform to counter allegations of corruption, made by an online news organization, La Posta. My wife Monica and I started working on the investigation together. One day, we came across a classified police report that had been filed away as top secret. It was from an anti-drug squad who had been following a man they thought was some minor drug dealer, but he wasn't. He was actually best friends with the president's brother-in-law. La Posta's specific focus on the role played by the president's brother-in-law during a particular operation is now under investigation by the authorities. La Posta is not the only media outlet to have done this kind of investigative reporting. Others have done it too. But what La Posta has exposed are clues suggesting that certain criminal gangs may have infiltrated the government. When we launched this investigation, we called it the Big Godfather, but we had no idea just how big it would turn out to be. 
As it developed, we found links between President Lasso, his brother-in-law, his cabinet, his police force, and one of the international drug cartels operating in Ecuador, the Albanian Mafia. We got first-person testimonies which talked about Mafia money being used in the president's election campaign, corruption at the highest level of government. Here was incontestable evidence of something we had long suspected. Ecuador was stealthily being turned into a narco-state. To attribute Ecuador's evolution into a narco-state, a government effectively infiltrated by drug cartels solely to Guillermo Lasso, would be wrong. It starts with the geography. Ecuador is bordered by two of the world's biggest cocaine producers, Colombia and Peru, and it sits right on the Pacific coast, perfectly positioned to connect drug dealers across the continent. It has a dollarized economy, which facilitates the operations and transactions of any international cartel, be it Mexican, Russian, Albanian. And then there's the instability of the infrastructure itself. Ecuador has been politically volatile, going from a left-wing populist president, Rafael Correa, to his former ally turned right-wing rival, Lenin Moreno, which left its institutions exposed long before Lasso took over. For me, there are two reasons why today Ecuador seems to have turned into a narco-state. The first is political, and it has to do with the departure of left-wing president Rafael Correa in 2017. He was followed by Lenin Moreno's government, which began to push right-wing neoliberal policies that weakened and hollowed out state institutions. The second factor has to do with the media. During Correa's tenure, the relationship between the government and the media was hostile, very negative. Yet, the antagonism between them, whether state or private media, was productive. Journalists were doing their job. When Moreno turned up, and Lasso is basically a continuation of Moreno, the media, or at least the vast majority of the media, aligned themselves with the government. They stopped monitoring it, and they missed the growing issues with security. For many of the journalists covering the drug trade and its effect on Ecuadorian politics, the biggest issue now is their own security. Two months ago, in a clearly coordinated attack, five reporters were sent letter bombs. Another two were forced to flee the country, and many more have sought government protection. Last year alone, Ecuador recorded more than 4,500 narco-related killings. Anyone covering those stories runs the risk of becoming a target too. It's a climate of intimidation that has a censorious effect on news coverage. I think it's fear that sets that agenda. The drug trade hasn't infected journalism. It's fear of the drug trade that has infected journalism. Among the mainstream press, there is this kind of implicit ban on naming organized criminal gangs. La noche de ayer en una cancha de, de la casuarina en Guayaquil. When you see reports, there is always this faceless, nameless monster, never a specific mention of Mr. Such and Such, who belongs to this particular gang and associates of this particular cartel. The reports do talk about the bloody war that is being waged, but without any kind of explanation as to why it's happening. The press has taken a very cautious stance because there's never been any guarantees for our safety. 
Killing someone in Ecuador is really cheap. A person can be murdered for just $35. We put ourselves in imminent danger, not only when we're covering stories that deal directly with organized crime, but even when we are dealing with political stories, because the tentacles of organized crime are difficult to separate. If you're covering a prison story, you are probably aware of the risks. But if you're following a political story, it might turn out to have a drug trafficking angle as well. It's a bit like wandering around a pitch black room. You never know whose interests you might end up treading on. It could be the interests of drug traffickers. It could be the interests of the police. Or it could even be the interests of the president himself. Earlier this month, lawmakers in Ecuador's National Assembly brought an impeachment case against Guillermo Lasso, the second in as many years, this time on charges of embezzlement. Part of the evidence used against him, La Posta's expose. La Posta's investigation exposed Lasso's entourage, mainly Lasso's brother-in-law, those linked to him, as well as Lasso's management of state-owned companies. I don't know what got La Posta's investigation going in the first place, whether it may have political or financial motives, but what's clear is that their scoop was the key piece of evidence in the impeachment trial, and it's been crucial in terms of exerting pressure on Lasso and the calls for his resignation. I mean, there are some in the media who feel La Posta's revelations fall short of the required journalistic standards. They point out how elements of the investigation have not been properly verified. That being said, their revelation stirred up the momentum that has been building against the president on the streets ever since the first attempt to impeach him in 2022. As long as the ongoing social situation is so poorly managed, the president will continue to hang by a thread. Lasso is still hanging by that thread, but only because he dissolved the National Assembly before it could hold his impeachment hearing, invoking something called muerte cruzada, which translates as mutual death. It's a constitutional measure employed for the first time in Ecuador's history, and it grants the president the right to rule by decree for six months or until snap elections are held. Mutual death, a fitting term, maybe even an omen, given the country's current narco climate. The Ecuadorian press is no longer an impartial player in the game between politicians and organized crime. We've actually become a target. This isn't normal. But it's our current reality. We are working in circumstances where the next death we report could well be one of our own. And finally, Malaysian comedian Nigel Ung, known as Uncle Roger by his fans, has been banned from both Weibo and Billy Billy, China's version of Twitter and YouTube, respectively, after tweeting a trailer for his upcoming live show. In it, Ong digs into China's heavily censored politics and its social credit scores, the program through which the authorities there track citizens online to come up with rewards or punishments, depending on their behavior. Uncle Roger is just the latest target in what appears to be a trend, a Chinese crackdown on comedians. We'll leave you now with the clip that got him in trouble with Beijing, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. You from Boston? Uh, originally from Guangzhou.
Guangzhou, China. China, okay. China, good country. Good country. Good country. Good country. Woo. We have to say that now, correct? All their phone listening. All their phone listening. This nephew got Huawei phone. They all listening. All our phone tap into it. Long live presidency. Long live presidency. Uncle Roger, social credit score going up. <laughs> nice. Annie's and nephew from Taiwan. Not a real country. Not a real... <laughs> Not a real country. I hope one day you rejoin the motherland. One China. No, no, don't clap too hard. This is not political show. No, don't clap. Great, good report for Uncle Roger, okay? Don't make him disappear, please. Uncle Roger gonna get cancelled after tonight. <laughs> <laughs>